Hey, hey, it's Conrad Thompson, and you're listening to 83 Weeks with Eric Bischoff. Eric, what's going on, man? How are you? I'm doing well, my friend. It's a beautiful evening in the neighborhood here in Stamford, Connecticut. A little bit of rain, but uh, looking forward to a fun week. It is going to be a fun week this week on 83 Weeks because we're going to talk about one of my favorite topics and yours, Road Wild 1999. Actually, this one probably wasn't as much fun for you. I think this is your last pay-per-view uh, in 1999. Is that right? I believe you're right. This would have been in August of 1999, and I was on a plane heading to Wyoming in September of 99. So, yep, you're right. August 14th, Sturgis, South Dakota. Of course, the famous Sturgis Motorcycle Rally, which I think just happened this year. The attendance for this show was around 5,500 and did a 0.54 buy rate. And this was the fourth and final Road Wild pay-per-view. Of course, the first one was Hog Wild back in 1996. And I guess sort of post Eric Bischoff era, this idea goes away. Was there a lot of pushback within the Turner organization or WCW about the concept or did, you know, it just sort of run its course? No, I, I, well, I mean, initially when we launched the idea for road wild, it, uh, it was met with a, a lot of support from the people above me, at least, uh, Again, keeping in mind, the goal was to find new ways to brand each of our pay-per-views so they felt unique from one another, uh, whether that be its location or the, the theme or the tone, as probably this pay-per-view more than any other uh, illustrates, because it was held outside and because it was themed against the the you know the Black Hills Motorcycle Rally or Sturgis. And you know, that was a big event that drew – even to this day, it draws somewhere between 500 and 750,000 people over the course of five or six days. So it, it had a lot of energy behind it, and, and it served its purpose as far as branding this particular pay-per-view. A lot of people, myself included, have been critical of the concept because you didn't charge admission. And I realized that was sort of secondary, and you, we've covered this before. You're willing to forego whatever the gate was for the opportunity to sort of rub up against some of these other big brands and, and maybe, uh, strengths or expand the footprint of WCW. But that being said, were there any sort of old school wrestling minds who were really against the idea and maybe none of them ever approached you with it, but you just heard the whispers. Not really. I mean, there, there, there was a lot of discomfort involved, meaning, you know, traveling to, to Rapid City was not an easy thing to do. Uh, once you got there, because it was such a popular event, people from all over the world, you know, descended upon Rapid City in the area around Sturgis. You know, there wasn't a lot of hotel rooms available. It's, it's not typically the kind of environment that, you know, talent or support people, including production people and, and, and all those who were, you know, instrumental in putting this thing together, it had to work pretty hard and had to put up a lot with a lot of discomfort. You know, you're surrounded by 750,000 motorcyclists. It's loud. It's hot. Uh, it's tough to get around again. You know, Sturgis is a, a very small city uh, and particularly back then, um, you, you're looking at a city that is probably only about 10,000 people, right? Uh, normally. And all of a sudden there's three quarters of a million or more, uh, in town. So you can imagine just simple things like getting from point A to point B was a, a big task. 
And it, it was tough. So there was a lot of grumbling about that. But the idea of the pay-per-view and doing the, the pay-per-view at Sturgis itself, I didn't hear a lot of complaints about that. I, I heard a fair amount about the, the environment and how tough it was, but not about the pay-per-view itself. Of course, if you're not familiar with Sturgis, it is a motorcycle rally, and it's an excuse for bikers, whether they're just uh, weekend enthusiasts or hardcore guys who sort of dedicate their lifestyle to motorcycling. They get together and have a lot of drinks and carry on and stories and concerts. And it's essentially a big party, right, Eric? It is. Yeah, that's an understatement. It, you know, and it runs the gamut. You know, as you said, you, you've got your weekend warriors, you know, your doctors, your attorneys, your lawyers, your bankers. Um, in fact, I, I met a guy there who started, uh, created the Cancer Treatment Centers of America. Dick Stevenson, uh, who is still a good friend to this day, uh, extremely successful, very wealthy individual, uh, obviously, and people like him, you know, go to Sturgis. You also have the other end of the spectrum, uh, people who are legitimately, you know, in that you know biker lifestyle almost full time. Uh, you have your various motorcycle clubs that are all a part of that, whether it be the Outlaws or Hells Angels and you name them, they're all there at the same time. Uh, and then you got everything in the middle, you know, you, you, your average, you know, nine to fiver who saves up his money all year round to, you know, put on his leathers and jump on his Harley and hang out with 750,000 like-minded people. So it, it, in terms of the crowd, it really does run the gamut. You know, people that think it's just a bunch of hardcore bikers or a bunch of weekend warriors, you know, obviously have never been there. Um, and as far as the activities go, it's, you know, it's toned down a lot, I think over the last 20 years or so. Uh, and even when we were there, we were hearing stories of some of the carrying on <laughs> that went out, you know, cause a lot of, a lot of the places have, uh, Outside of Sturgis, there's a number of different campgrounds, like Buffalo Chip, for example, is a very famous campground that's got, I don't know, three, four, five thousand people camping out there. And those parties were um, legendary. Now, I never I was never at one. I certainly I heard all the stories, but uh, a fair amount of alcohol, nudity and fun and frolic for all involved was kind of the normal course of business that has toned down quite a bit. I, I think as the the community has gotten a little bit older, you know, it's to, to show up at Sturgis now, you know, you've got to have some, some disposable income, you know, uh, a Harley runs you probably around 15, 18, 20 grand. Some of the bikes you see there are upwards of 50, 75 and a hundred thousand dollars. You've got to take a week off work. It's very expensive to go there. So the, 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 the nature of the crowd has changed quite a bit over the years and law enforcement has had a lot to do with that. You know, one of the things I found fascinating is you, you, you walk around Sturgis and you see a lot of people that look like bikers and many of them are undercover law enforcement and they bring in law enforcement from all over the country to kind of infiltrate the crowd and be walking around the streets and, you know, not only keep things quiet, um, and, and handle any trouble that comes up, but also to kind of take the temperature on any kind of illegal or illicit, uh, activity that's taking place. So it is a very, very interesting dynamic. Let's uh, keep it moving here because I think really the, the story of the show, because we have covered sort of the concept of Sturgis a couple times now, but the big thing is what's going on behind the scenes. And you wrote in your book, 
the bottom line here is that in August of 99, WCW was facing the first quarter in 18 or 20, where we were projecting a loss. This loss was in the neighborhood of one and a half million dollars. The numbers that were quote unquote reported by the media later were many times higher. When I saw those numbers months later, it appeared to me that management had decided to dump as much of a projected loss on the books as possible for the fiscal year, 1999. This way management could look as good as possible in fiscal 2000. I'd seen it before and it didn't surprise me. And I said to myself, there's no one above me who wants this company to succeed. The limitations they're putting on us, make it impossible for us to pull the nose up. They're rejecting every opportunity to turn it around. And I thought back to the meeting a year before when I'd been told to stop using the Leno jokes. I told myself I should have quit back then. I should have drawn the line in the sand when I had more leverage. Now I had no leverage and I had zero support. I was surrounded by people who were job scared and obsessed with their stock option packages. So on Thursday night, September 9th, 1999, I called Harvey from home and told him I was miserable. I'd had it. I wanted out. I was going to do what I should have done a year before. And Harvey talked me out of it. He said, I was just under a lot of stress. He was trying to be a friend and a leader though. In my mind, I didn't want to hear it. In the end, I agreed with him reluctantly. I was driving to work the next morning and Harvey called my cell phone. What's up? I asked, meet me in my office. What's up? Just meet me in my office. I knew right then what was up. I was gone, but the reality of it and Harvey's sudden turnaround still surprised me. So that's what you wrote years ago in your book. Do you feel any differently or is that pretty much, you know, the way you feel now? Definitely the way I feel now. And I think if anything, I probably have what I suspect at least is a little bit more insight. Um, again, just having more time to think about it and, and understand what was really going on behind the scenes. And again, you have to, you know, I know I've said this so many times, I'm sure the audience gets tired of me saying it. It does sound almost like an excuse, but you know, when you're in the middle of a corporate merger, like we were, when all of a sudden stock options uh, for the executives at the highest level is the most important thing on anybody's mind. And on top of that, you've, you've got, uh, you've got a company that's trying to, to shift their profits and losses in a way, perfectly legal, by the way. I'm not suggesting it wasn't legal. It was. Uh, but there was a lot of very creative ways that money was moving around in that company pre-AOL Time Warner and, and post-Time Warner. Uh, I had seen it, as I suggested in my book. I'd, I'd seen significant, significant amounts of money being allocated, reallocated, uh, projected, uh, maybe n- numbers that were projected that weren't a hundred percent accurate, uh, but served their purpose. So, you know, looking back at it now, uh, I'm, I'm more convinced now than ever that what I wrote about in my book and what I was feeling at the time is, is very true. Let's, uh, let's talk a little bit about how that affected WCW leading into this show. Melser would report at the end of July, the plan is for Eric Bischoff to get the presidency of the company back and then go heel once again. As long as the booking is primarily for the egos of those doing the writing, the company is doomed to be playing catch up. He then wrote Goldberg renegotiated a contract with a raise up to 1.5 million per year. WWF was salivating and that may be too weak a term, hoping Goldberg would somehow, uh, remove himself from WCW, even though he had three years left on his contract. And then they could finally promote Austin Goldberg. And there were plans on the table for that and everything. So two things to talk about here. Do you recall before 
everything happened here in September, the plan being, I'm going to be an on-screen evil boss character again. Uh, yeah. I mean, there, look for better or worse. I, I had a lot of heat and and it was, it was an effective role for me. Uh, notice you said past tense there had a lot of heat. Well, we're talking about 1999. No, no, I'm just kidding that you still have heat. My (laughs) apologies. Continue. Oh, I'm sorry. It's late. (laughs) (laughs) My joke meter isn't quite there yet. Um, no, I mean, I, I had a lot of heat as a character. Uh, the NWO story was still viable, or at least I thought it was at the time. Clearly, I had run it into the dirt. There were a lot of mistakes made, but there was still the feeling uh, internally that we could pull the nose up on that story in some way, shape, or form. Regardless of the NWO story, uh, I had been positioned as an authority figure, and I think you almost need that. You know, if you go back and look at the history of television wrestling, there has always been a commissioner or uh, a general manager or somebody who had that final position of authority that could either make or unmake matches or levy fines or do any of the the more or less administrative type things that a, a, a team owner would do, for example, or a head coach would do. So uh, we're still seeing it to this day that that, that architecture still exists. But yes, you know, I was an effective on on camera character. I had been for a number of years, and there was a plan to answer your question succinctly. Yes, there indeed was a plan for me to you know get back into that role. Do you think there's still a plan, or not a plan, but a place in wrestling for the the sort of evil boss character in 2019? I think there can be, and I think it depends on the evil boss, and it depends on the framework of the story and and the kind of the construct of it all to answer your question. Yes. I mean, it's relatable. Everybody can relate to a boss that you hate working for. Everybody can relate to uh, a boss or a company or, or management that takes advantage of, you know, the, the employees, if you will, uh, you hear it in the NFL, you know, you, you, you hear off often, about players, NFL, Major League Baseball, whatever, you name it. Uh, you'll often hear about the issues and the challenges that exist between players and team owners or, 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 or managers, so forth. So, yeah, it, it still exists. It's been done a lot. There's no doubt about it. It's hard to maintain it. Um, but I, I definitely believe that the framework of that type of story, not only is there still a place for it, but ultimately, I think it almost has to exist. Maybe not as overtly, and in this, maybe not being so prominent week after week after week. But nevertheless, I think the construct of story requires it. Let's uh, talk about Goldberg for a minute because he comes up here as somebody who's negotiating to get a raise, and of course, you famously told us about that negotiating with his agent and how miserable that was. But specifically. The idea that the WWF is ready to just jump at the chance to get Goldberg and they've already got sort of their eye on Goldberg, Austin. Were you hearing that at the time or, or, or do you just learn about that much later? I, I heard about it much later. I didn't hear about it at the time. And, and even if I had, I wouldn't have put a lot of, uh, I just wouldn't have given it a lot of thought one way or the other. You know, there, there's a point where there are certain things that are out of your control. And I, I tried to only worry about the things that I had control over. If Bill would have wanted to go to work for the WWF and WWF was ready to offer him a big money deal, 
uh, there was very little I could do about that. You know, we, we fought as hard as we could. I, I raided the piggy bank with the support of Harvey Schiller uh, to make Bill's deal happen. But at the end of the day, if WWF would have come up with a better offer or Bill just wanted to go somewhere else, that was out of my control. But to answer your question, I didn't, I didn't hear that. I didn't hear about that at all. There's all, you always think in the back of your mind, well, here's a high-profile pro, sure. piece of talent. He's on a roll. Uh, you'd be silly not to consider that that was an option either for him or the WWF, but it wasn't something I stressed about. Meltzer would also write, it appears part of the reason WCW signed Rodman was an out of court settlement to drop his lawsuit stemming from bash at the beach last year, where he quote unquote only got 2.25 million and felt they deceived him in the contract negotiations for another 550,000 due to him. The presumption is his deal for road wild is the same 1.5 million base plus a percentage of revenues above 3.9 million. Little does he know he's not making much on that percentage this time out. The truth of what Rodman means was revealed as there was little or no media buzz on his nitro angle this time. So a lot to unpack here. Let's start at the end and work backwards. When Rodman first pops up in 97, it is to. Tremendous fanfare. I mean, it's all over uncensored. It's a big deal. When you guys run the angle and the pay-per-view with Malone in 98, again, a lot of buzz, a lot of media hype, a lot of press. It doesn't feel like that is the case here in 99. Is it just too much of the same? It's not special or unique? Or why do you think the media didn't chomp at this one? Because they'd covered it. There was nothing new to write about. Dennis Rodman coming to WCW in 97 was big news. It was, a, it was a hell of a story. In 98, he was in the NBA Finals. It was a hell of a big story. In 99, there was nothing new there to talk about, and they'd covered it. It was yesterday's news. You know, Dennis Rodman in professional wrestling wasn't a hot story. Dennis Rodman wasn't a hot story uh, in, in 1999. So, it, you know, what? Uh, whoever wrote that, I guess it's Meltzer, um, yeah, he's, he had a keen, keen eye for the Keen eye for the obvious, <laughs> but it had been three. We certainly didn't get as much media out of the third one as we had on the previous two. Um, well, let's talk about that specifically the reason the third one happens. Dave's sort of asserting here that this is essentially almost like a settlement because he was unhappy with his 98 payoffs. So you guys bring him back for 99. Is that accurate? Or are you going to call bullshit? No, I'm calling it. I mean, Look, this is the same guy in Dave Meltzer who uh, I heard just recently announced that there was a done deal, a done deal for the dark side of wrestling over at Vice to do an in-depth story uh, featuring Chris Benoit's children or child and Nancy Sullivan's family. And the deal was done and nothing was farther from the truth. And that's typical Dave Meltzer. Um, he reports things he has no real knowledge of. He, he regurgitates second and third hand rumor and innuendo and presents it, uh, as fact. And so often he's wrong and in, in, he's wrong in this case, this was not a settlement in any stretch of the imagination was his third go round with us. A, the result of a settlement on the contrary, had there been a lawsuit and had we ended up in litigation, the last thing I would have wanted to do was have him involved in the company. You know, sue me once, shame on me. Sue me twice, or sue me once, shame on you. Sue me twice, shame on me. I would have never put myself or the company in that position. 
Um, was there an issue with 98? Sure. There was an accounting issue. Anybody that's ever been in the pay-per-view business knows that the money comes in slowly. Yep. Um, it, it, you oftentimes don't get a full accounting from your cable providers. Sometimes, well, at least back then, it was sometimes eight months or a year later before you had full accounting. And yes, there were some issues and there were some questions and there was some dialogue. But to suggest that this was any kind of a settlement as a result of uh, what had happened the previous years, you know, it's just more Dave Meltzer's silliness. Let's talk about some other great sums of money that people have been critical about with you before. Uh, Wade Keller would report here. Kid Rock is expected to perform in an upcoming Nitro, and the story going around WCW is Rock's people were contacted and offered $75,000 for him to perform on Nitro. Uh, And in a negotiation move, of course, he counters with $250,000 thinking WCW would make a lower counter. Instead, WCW agreed to the 250 without hesitation. Uh, so there you go. And how, and how would Dave, and just, I, I just got to stop it there because we, we, you know, we put this stuff out there that this idiot has written in the past and presented his facts, but how would Dave know that? Just to be clear, this idiot is Wade Keller in this instance. Okay. Then, then Wade Keller, how would Wade Keller know that? Well, it certainly seems like someone is calling and telling him something as if it's absolute fact. And we can guess, you know, I mean, I don't know if Terry Taylor was calling from a cell phone or his home phone or a pay phone, but something like that. You know, I, and I don't want to put it on Terry Taylor because I don't know that that happened either. But that's my point to all of these so-called facts and stories and the, the, the reporting that goes on of things happening behind the scenes, the people, if, if someone actually did call Wade Keller and share that information, that person, number one, it, it wasn't Diana Myers. It wasn't me. Diana Myers was one of our attorneys. It wasn't Nick Lambros. Uh, and, and Terry Taylor didn't have any direct contact with any of those people or Terry Taylor or anybody else other than probably myself I had any real conversations with those people. It wasn't something that the, the staff in general would have been aware of or involved of. So this kind of leak, uh, is usually generated by somebody who has an agenda, somebody who's disgruntled, who doesn't like the current political environment that existed back then and is going to feed a stooge like, you know, Meltzer or in this case, Keller, whatever they think they can get him to print because they want to be disruptive. That, that's the nature of a lot of this stuff. When leaks do occur, they're coming from people that a aren't even part of the process, don't have any facts and B more often than not are, are, are tainted, if you will, by, people with specific agendas. Well, something that was not cool was, uh, an idea that Meltzer wrote here. He says they've talked with disco Inferno about taking a bump on his head and then doing an amnesia gimmick where he thinks he's one of the established stars like Hulk Hogan and Randy Savage. And he does promos mad at Crispin Benoit and Dean Malenko for thinking they can take the main event spots from guys like him and Hulk Hogan. This is kind of funny, but kind of silly. And maybe some of the best wrestling stuff is both of those. What'd you think of this idea? And, uh, just talk about the idea without ranting about Meltzer, if that's possible. The, you know, when I read that, you know, I know you were, I knew you were going to bring that up when you sent the notes over for the show. And I, as I was reading it, you know, Dave reporting on it aside, I kind of chuckled. I mean, especially when you think about disco and his character back then, it was a good idea. Yeah. It would have been funny. 
I, I, I could see, you know, Disco being able to pull that off very, very effectively. It would have been entertaining. It would have been perfect for his character at that time. Uh, and it would have been a, a, it would have been fun to have fun with that kind of character in that storyline. Meltzer would also report that David Finley suffered a broken leg and severed tendons in the leg on July 25th in Jacksonville, Mississippi, when a table he goes through winds up slicing through part of his leg to the point that the actual bone is visible. He's bleeding like crazy, of course, and um, he has to undergo surgery. We even discussed that this might be possible career ending. And the initial prognosis is if he is able to return, it probably wouldn't be for another year. And he may wind up with a rod in his foot or at worst a clubbed foot. So this is a, a major situation here for friend of the show fit Finley. When do you hear about this horrific injury and are you getting updates uh, as the process goes or what's protocol when something horrific like this happens? Well, I heard about it, uh, probably it was either that night or, or the day after it happened because of the severity, severity of it. Um, once that kind of an injury occurred, I would probably get an update once a month or so. Uh, I didn't talk to fit on a regular basis about it. Uh, I wouldn't probably hear about anything of it until he was either cleared or about to be cleared or if there was an indication that he wasn't going to get cleared and he might not return to action. So in terms of the protocol, once an injury that severe takes place, you know, obviously legal has legal has to handle it. Um, uh, loss prevention has to have, has, has to get involved. Uh, risk management, I should say has to get involved. So there's a lot of people that are in the loop on that, but not necessarily me. Something I do want to ask you about is, is Conan had an incident at an airport and he wound up being arrested for, and then, um, it's worth mentioning that he's also working with a neck injury here. Uh, and he suffers a concussion on nitro when one of the members of the insane clown posse goes to do like a, a top rope leg drop and the guy's butt crashes directly onto Conan's head. So he's sort of in a bad way and it's going to be out some time. The only reason I mentioned this is because Meltzer made note in here, the new WCW contracts call for a drop in pay. If a wrestler is injured and unable to return after 30 days, the old contracts call for a drop in pay to be put in effect after an injury keeps a wrestler on the DL for 90 days. So, you know, just sort of reading between the lines there, if you have a policy change like this, it's probably because someone somewhere feared that, Hey, the boys are probably taking advantage of this. Let's be honest, it, it happened pretty consistently in WCW. It was an issue, and it was, I, I think those policy changes did reflect WCW's effort to kind of curtail the abuse of, uh, of, of that type of a situation. You know, keep in mind, there were people who were hurt, seriously hurt, who I did take care of. You know, I, Eddie Guerrero being one of them um, for a long period of time. Uh, I could have easily, if, if I wouldn't have had a heart or we would have just been strictly, uh, strictly business, so to speak, um, and followed the letter of the contract, that wouldn't have been the case. So we always had options, even though legally, yes, we did have contracts that tried to protect WCW. It didn't mean that in every situation we wouldn't make an exception. Let's talk about, uh, something I know you're very. I'm passionate about, and that's the Dave Meltzer's wrestling observer hall of fame. Uh, you were nominated 
here's what I wanted to bring up though. You were nominated in 1999 and, uh, here's what he wrote. He got some consideration from people last year and he, of course, he's talking about you probably is more responsible than Vince McMahon for creating the popularity boom of the business over the past three years. But plenty of promoters have had a great two or three year run. And the key for a promoter to make the list is 10 to 20 years of consistent, successful promoting. Bischoff to me, despite his initial success and the doors that have been opened to wrestlers, which isn't looking very good these days, even if he was still needs years more of success to stand the test of time. (laughs) Whatever. Like (laughs) the wrestling, the wrestling observer hall of fame. This is the first I've heard that I was even mentioned in, in, in consideration for something like that. And by the way, I, I wouldn't have given a damn then, nor do I give a damn now what the Wrestling Observer Hall of Fame uh, tends to think about anybody, especially me. Meltzer would report that Raven was pretty vocal about his unhappiness with the promotion. And uh, at this point, he's on the shelf. He's injured. But he actually makes an appearance on your friend man cow show and rips the company claiming that they use camera tricks to make it appear that some wrestlers aren't as over as they really are and talked about some of the same problems that everyone else had. And then he even did an interview with the ECW website where he said he'd rather be working for ECW. He's told a lot of people when his contract is up, which is about 10 months away, he's gone. And we know eventually you do wind up granting him an early release. When did you first learn? But Hey man, uh, Raven being miserable might not just be a gimmick. He's just straight up. Not happy here. He's a miserable human. He was a miserable human being. I mean, he was miserable everywhere he went. I I never knew him not to be miserable. And it, you know, it's just who he was. It was part he's a depressing kind of a personality and it was always something to bitch and moan about. Um, he, he never really lived up to his own expectations or, the lofty goals that he had set for himself and he wasn't nearly as over as he thought he was. And that happens sometimes, you know, but whatever. I mean, it was pretty consistent with, with Scotty Levy. He was always a negative, dark kind of miserable person that just loved to hear himself bitch. Well, let's talk about somebody else that you had issues with, uh, Rick flair. He misses the nitro on August 9th after returning from Japan due to a back injury. But Meltzer would say he was also asked to put Shane Douglas over clean. And apparently Flair had told friends he's more than willing to lose to guys like Chris Benoit or Kidman, but that Shane Douglas hadn't gotten over, was drawing poor quarter hours and didn't deserve it. And those in the company that normally complain about the old guys, not putting over the new guys were sympathetic on this account, but Flair was because Flair was the only superstar to work with and elevate the second tier guys. What say you, do you remember this situation where there is a back injury, but people are wondering, uh, does he just not want to put Shane over? I don't remember, you know, this specific storyline as, as it was reported. Uh, once again, I'm sure there was some truth to it and I'm sure part of it is, um, creative writing <laughs> on the part of whoever wrote it. Uh, it could have been true. You know, look, there was, there was an issue between flair and Shane. Uh, Douglas, there's no mistake. I mean, people are pretty aware of that. Uh, Rick was also, from time to time, 
pretty stiff when it came to what he wanted to do and what he didn't want to do and the reasons for it. So I'm not saying it didn't happen. I, I just don't remember enough of the details to talk about it too much. Let's talk about something else. Let's talk about him actually trying to get out of his contract. Wade Keller would write that he asked for a release, but you guys wouldn't grant him a release. And Wade would say Flair's frustration with WCW reached the point where he was willing to give up the final 18 months of his contract pay, which totaled nearly a million bucks. Wade writes that his agent, Barry Bloom met with you guys the prior week. And, uh, the unanswered question is whether Flair would have agreed to a release if WCW insisted on a clause that meant he couldn't sign with the WWF until his WCW contract would have expired. So this no WWF clause really means that Flair is going to be stuck working indie dates and perhaps as crazy as this sounds an ECW show, but as it winds up, you guys were not willing to grant him any sort of release conditional or otherwise. Uh, so he's going to have to come back to the show and, and supposedly it's even discussed here that he doesn't want to be on TV. Just let him work house shows, which is kind of the opposite of all the other big names in WCW at the time. What do you remember about the meeting with Barry and, and Rick trying to get out and then saying, just use me on the house shows, man. I wouldn't have met with Barry. That conversation would have probably taken place between either Diana Myers and or Nick Lambros and Barry Bloom. By that point, I didn't want to have anything to do with Barry Bloom. Uh, I doubt that it was true uh, in, in terms of, uh, well, let me take that back. I'm sure that it was true if Rick wanted his release that we would have done everything in our power to make sure that he didn't end up going to the competition. That's just common sense. Sure. Well, this is maybe a little less common sense. Uh, Meltzer says that you wanted to turn Hogan back heel as a reminder. He's just turned red and yellow. He's just now a good guy. And you're sort of saying, well, there hasn't been an increase in the ratings, so that's not working. And Meltzer would say Hogan's doing the red and yellow on Monday was his step to try to prove Bischoff wrong because he didn't want to turn back so quickly. And at one point Bischoff wanted to book a heel Hogan beating a babyface Bret Hart for the main event of the August 23rd nitro in Las Vegas, rather than saving it for fall brawl as originally planned. And that seems to have fallen apart. Although Hart is said to be training like crazy for his comeback, recognizing that he has a lot to prove to everyone. And there's no definite time or definite program for him anymore at this point. So as a reminder, we're trying Hulk Hogan as a good guy after this incredible run as the leader of the NWO. And then you guys roll the dice and let him even come back in the yellow and red was Hulk hesitant to, to go. I mean, obviously the heel thing at this point is sort of old hat for him. It's not, it's not like you asked him to turn in 96 all over again. Does he just feel like the flip flop isn't good for him or, or did he really enjoy an aspect of being a baby face more. What was it that made him sort of dig his heels in on this? Well, we're assuming that all of that reporting is true and it's not, you know, once again, Dave, Dave certainly wasn't in the Meltzer wasn't in the room while, while I was having any of these conversations with Hulk Hogan and neither, by the way, were Terry Taylor or anybody, any uh, other usual suspects when it came to leaking stuff to Dave. So I, I don't know where that information got to, how it got to, to Dave or anybody else, uh, it sounds to me like it's just fiction. Um, once my recall of once Hulk Hogan decided to you know go back to red and yellow, and nobody would, including me, would have suggested that he go back to, and, and turn heel again just for the sake of it 
or because it really wasn't working as, as Dave said, it wasn't working as well as we thought it would and wasn't, you know, ringing the cash register, so to speak. That never happened. Those conversations never happened. They maybe happened in Dave's mind as he was writing it and felt like he had to come up with some good story, but it didn't happen. You know, the, the, the decision to turn Hulk Hogan babyface again and go back to red and yellow, whether that was a good idea or a bad idea, uh, everybody else can be the judge. But I can assure you there was no no meaningful conversation about turning him heel again on the heels of that. No pun intended. We should remind you that this turn for the red and yellow happened on the August 9th nitro. So the go home nitro for this show, we're covering road wild. He starts the night in his typical black and white, but after a backstage scene with his son who asked him to wear the red and yellow, well, he does. And, uh, it's kind of a cool deal. Rick Steiner and Sid Vicious beat him up. That brings out Goldberg and Sting. They clean house, do a six-man match later in the show, and he challenges Nash to a loser-must-retire match. So that's what Nitro presented in the go-home edition. The rating is a 3.11. Uh, Raw has Chris Jericho debut, and they get a 6.36. So pretty good thumping here from Raw. Let's get to uh, Roadwild, but before we do... Let's talk about something that happened behind the scenes. Uh, allegedly, Buff Bagwell and Ernest Miller get into an argument here and come to blows before their match. And the original finish had Miller going over, but Bagwell went to Kevin Nash complaining, saying that you know he's the one left laying the most in the TV angles, and Nash changes it. And there were reports that the finish and post-match were constantly being changed to sort of placate both sides. Bagwell complains about a finish where he'd win with a a little cradle, but then get left laying again. Somehow it escalates into words. Bagwell went to slap or did slap Miller first. And, uh, it was sort of on from there, including the guys coming to blows. Jack me up. When did you hear about this? What do you know about it? What do you remember? I heard about it shortly after it happened, uh, day of, um, I wasn't there. I didn't see it. I was a little surprised. Ernest is not the kind of guy that is going to throw down necessarily. Uh, certainly once he makes up his mind that that's what he's going to do, he's very effective at it. Um, can turn it into kind of an art form actually. Uh, and Bagwell, I don't, you know, I don't know how tough Bagwell ever has been in his life or was at that point in time, but certainly he would have been no match for Ernest Miller. Ernest Miller was a pretty big, strong, tough guy and, you know, add his kickboxing abilities on top of that. And he was a legit kickboxer that could do some serious damage. Um, I'm sure it didn't last long and I'm sure it wasn't much of a fight or Bagwell wouldn't have been around to talk about it, but I did hear about it. Um, wasn't too concerned about it. That kind of stuff, unfortunately happens occasionally. And as long as nobody gets hurt, doesn't involve any other personnel other than the two principals, just, you know, not something I condone certainly, but it wasn't something I was going to go beat my head on a, on a rock over either. It was just so go about our business. So you take the attitude of this is not a punishable offense, just emotions run hot and with athletes and stories, this, this can happen. Let's not make it worse than it already was. It depends on the situation. You know, how, how much does it escalate? I've, I've, you know, I've seen that kind of thing happen before. And as long as nobody gets physically hurt, as long as nobody ends up going to a hospital, um, yeah, you, you talk to everybody. They have to know that it's unprofessional. They have to know that it's not acceptable behavior, 
but it's not like I'm going to fire anybody over it, depending on, on this, in this circumstance, because nobody else got hurt because it was a dust up. It wasn't a, you know, 20 minute brawl where people ended up going to the hospital. Uh, there was no damage done. So yeah, you talk to people, it's not okay. Don't condone it. And every situation is different, but in this particular one, it just didn't warrant a lot of disciplinary action. It was written that, uh, Bagwell was punished by being taken off the August 16th nitro, but there was some heat about the fact because Miller wasn't punished that maybe this was a double standard. And, um, I don't know. It is what it is. The poor, the report from the dirt sheets at the time was Ernest landed a couple of solid punches to Bagwell's mouth and cheek and Bagwell and, and he go down and Miller's trying not to get hit. And, uh, in the process, Bagwell scrapes his elbow up pretty bad. And when they finally get back to their feet, Miller's still ready to go, but Bagwell's had enough with the punches and is trying to talk some sense into the situation. <laughs> yeah. Sounds, sounds about right. <laughs> well, I, I mean, uh, I've never, I've never known anybody that goes into fight and tries to get hit. You know, sure. the reference that Ernest Miller is trying not to get hit. Well, that's kind of a plan, right? I just think that's the reason <laughs> he took him down because he knew, uh, you know, maybe Bagwell can swing a punch, but Bagwell's probably not a ground fighter and Ernest is going to know how to take him down. And then he can't really punch him too bad from his back. Let's keep it going. This is a, a fun show for what it is. Uh, this is probably my favorite of the, uh, road wall shows. Uh, maybe it's just because I had a good time watching it at the time. And I still remember where I watched it, but even though this is a the most hodgepodge group of performers ever. It's a pretty fun match. Your first one, it's Rey Mysterio, Billy Kidman, and Eddie Guerrero. It's a lot of talent on one side and on the other side. Well, it's Vampiro and the insane clown posse. Raven is at ringside here. Uh, the match was okay. According to Meltzer it says, although you'd expect more than okay from a match involving Mysterio, you know, junior Kidman and Guerrero. And he says that ICP did fine considering the level of experience. And of course the finish sees Vampiro accidentally kick shaggy two dope and Guerrero does a Pescado on Vampiro and then Kidman pins shaggy after the shooting star press two and a quarter stars. The idea of this being like a, a six man with Eddie Guerrero and Rey Mysterio on one side, it does feel sort of Lucha esque, which I kind of like, but the insane clown posse in here with some of the best wrestlers in the world. Clearly they need that as sort of garnish to bring them up a level, but it does feel like maybe we could have done a little more with some great in-ring talent than have them wrestle clowns. What say you? Yeah, I, I can't, uh, I can't just listening to you lay that out the way you just did kind of made me go. Ooh, oh, and you're right. You know, when you've got as much talent as you had on one side of the ring, um, you would expect a great match out of it, but keep in mind, they've got to have somebody to work with and the insane clown posse. were not anywhere near the level of experience or abilities, uh, that their opponents were bringing to the table. So you, you would, ex you know, looking back at it now, I wish I wouldn't have booked it. I'm sure on paper it can, it made some kind of storyline sense, but if you can't execute that story in the ring, no matter how good it is on paper, if it doesn't come off well in the ring, it's, it's going to go flat. And I can imagine that this went pretty flat. Next up, we're going to get Harlem hate Harlem heats, eighth tag team title win. They're going to lose that title reign nine days later to the West Texas rednecks, but whatever 
eight tag team title runs. Of course, this win is over Chris Canyon and Bam Bam Bigelow. They go 13 minutes and six seconds. Uh, Meltzer, not a big fan. He says Stevie Ray versus Bigelow was unbelievably bad, like unbelievably missed moves and positioning. And Booker T and Canyon were nearly as good as the other two were bad. Uh, so not the best work here from these guys. And Meltzer would say the triad did Mike work early to make sure the Sturgis crowd, which has had some racist crowd reactions in the past, reacted to them as the heels one star. It is a little weird sometimes seeing the way, um, some of the performers talk about this show or these outdoor shows, specifically the Harlem heat. Maybe they didn't have the best experience, but you're giving them a win here and trying to position them as the baby faces, but maybe the wrestling left a little to be desired. what do you think of this one? Yeah, I think the wrestling left a lot to be desired, and I can't disagree with Meltzer's point of view on this one. I mean, it is what it is. It's, there's just no chemistry there. Chat me up. Uh, where do you rank Harlem Heat on the list of WCW tag teams? I think they are they even win back as, almost as quickly as they lose the belts to the West Texas Rednecks. They win them back, but nine times, I think, at that point, they would have been tag team champions. That's got to be pretty high in the WCW packing order. I would guess so. Of course. Um, I thought a lot of them or they wouldn't have been in the position they were in. They earned it. Um, particularly Booker T his ability to talk. I like Stevie Ray. He was, we've talked about this before. He was always the big physical threat and, and Booker T was able to execute some pretty amazing things in the ring in terms of the narrative that took place inside the, the wrestling ring itself. But Booker was a great talker, which is why they, stayed as high up in the pecking order, as you put it, uh, as they did, because they brought that combination of either good to great ring work, depending on the situation, with excellent ability to to grab a hold of the microphone and tell a story. Next up is uh, a lot of story. We got Perry Saturn, Shane Douglas, and Dean Malenko, three members of what will be the revolution, and they're going to get a win over the Rappus Crap team, Barry Windham, Kurt and uh, Bobby Duncan Jr. They got nearly 11 minutes, three quarters of a star. You know, this is a cult classic. People love the West Texas rednecks. I don't know that it was as big of a hit at the time as it is now to look back on it, but these guys were clearly having fun. what did you think after all these years? Did it age well? Did you like it or was it a miss? I liked it. You know, I liked it, you know, the way it was constructed, the way it was launched, I liked. I liked the principles involved in it. I liked the theme. I liked the story. I don't know. I, 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 I think it ages very well. I still like it. So, uh, three quarters of a star here. Lots of uh, great wrestling talent, but for whatever reason, maybe a bit of a mess. And most of what observe, Wyndham, who is deceptively tall. Visually makes Malenko look like nothing when they're in the ring together. It's one of those matchups that's best left avoided. So of course, WCW continues to do it. I do think, uh, I don't know. You hate the way he writes sort of snarky sometimes about wrestling, but Barry Windham is way taller than people imagine. Fair to say. <laughs> I guess so. Yeah. No, I'm just saying like, big... it, I know that's silly, but. Barry Windham's Hulk Hogan's high. And I don't think everybody just sort of assumes that. I think the two most deceptively big dudes in wrestling are probably Barry Windham and Billy Gunn. When you have talent like that, that are, as he would write, deceptively tall. Did you ever give any thought to maybe we shouldn't put them in with some of the quote unquote cruiser height guys? 
No, I didn't. You know, for the same reason, go back and look at the Rey Mysterio-Kevin Nash match. That's even that's even a better example of a guy that's even taller than Barry Windham and a guy that's even shorter than Dean Malenko. It's, it's what do you do in the match? You know, big guys fight tall guys all the time in real life. You know, I wouldn't want to make a steady diet of it, but I'm certainly not one that subscribes to the fact that you could never have a, a, an excessively tall guy in a, in, a, in a match with somebody who's significantly shorter. It's, it depends. It depends how the match is laid out. It depends on what the finish is going to be. It, de- it depends on a lot of different things. But to just say, oh, he's too tall. We don't ever want to put him in the ring with a shorter guy or a cruiserweight, you know, type guy. And no, I wouldn't have subscribed to that. Well, we're here for this one. Buff Bagwell and Ernest Miller, after their fight, go out and have a match for seven minutes and twenty-four seconds. Of course, it's not exactly a clinic. It gets a dud rating. And, uh, Meltzer says it gets the first real crowd heat on the entire show, largely due to Miller inciting the crowd in his pre-match promo, lots of stalling and cheerleading early. Eventually Sonny Ono accidentally hits Miller with the briefcase. Bagwell does a pretty messed up looking rolling reverse cradle for the pin. And then after the match, Miller kicks Bagwell and Ono takes off his vest and begins mimicking Bagwell doing the bodybuilding poses. And Meltzer would say it would have been funny, except for some reason, Ono just isn't funny. What'd you think of this match? And I mean, in hindsight, given that these guys are just throwing down for real backstage, should this match have happened? Yes. Yes. They're professionals. Look, I can, uh, <laughs> I can get in a fight with somebody backstage or, 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 or down the street from my house or or in any kind of a situation or an argument or whatever the case may be. And once it's over, it's over. You know, if you're a pro, you take care of business. So, you know, to suggest that the match should have been scratched because these two got into an altercation backstage. Oh my God. That's ridiculous. Well, I'm grabbing at straws here. I'm trying to do anything I can to make today's show entertaining. No, I'm Uh, sorry. I'm I'm, I'm sorry, but I don't know. (laughs) I'm sorry. I didn't mean to jump on you but no 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 it's fine it's just you know fuck there's not a lot to talk about here besides you being depressed and wanting to go home so i'm like okay we'll talk about guys fucking fighting for real maybe there's something there and maybe there's not but i'm, I'm doing my best baby chris benoit is in there for the u.s title next with dean well not dean diamond dallas page 12 minutes and 14 seconds Meltzer really liked this one so it's really the only good match on the show and uh he gave it uh, three and a quarter stars i i i I'm not normally a huge, um, fan of the no DQ matches. And I know you don't like them, especially because we're going to get lots of interference on this one. So Canyon's going to run in Bigelow's going to be there. Malenko, Saturn and Douglas are watching on a monitor, but they're not coming to help because Benoit told them not to. And just all the different shenanigans here to help DDP somehow Chris Benoit overcomes it all, even though it there for a little while it does look like it's three on one so i guess it tells the right story but all the crazy interference i don't know not a huge fan but these guys know how to put on a good match and tell a great story Meltzer loved it so it was the best match of the show what'd you think i did like it quite a bit it did tell a great story and 
this particular show needed a match like that. It's hard, you know. Look, there were a lot of challenges. We talked about, you know, some of the physical challenges and the, you know, the financial limitations that doing a show in Sturgis put on us. Uh, the other thing that's really hard to do in Sturgis, because admittedly these are not hardcore wrestling fans, these are not people that tune in each and every week. They're not really familiar with storylines, and in many cases, even some of our characters. So to get their attention and to keep them lively, uh, you needed a match like this and the match worked very well. Let's talk about what happened leading up to this United States title match though. Um, Meltzer would say the latest on the flair situation, and to be clear, he's talking about David flair is that he was examined by his doctor who said due to his back injury, he should take a month off. It's no secret that flair in the past has worked with injuries as at least, or even more severe, but the company has now killed his zest for wrestling over the past week. He did contemplate retiring. He was not at the pay-per-view or nitro. And while he couldn't have worked, he could have done interviews or angles. And at one point was booked to be at nitro. Now he won't be appearing at the house shows that he's been booked on over the upcoming weeks against Goldberg and Benoit and heat between the sides apparently hasn't gotten any better as management is very upset. He missed nitro the past two weeks. And as punishment for it, they gave the U.S. title to Benoit last week, literally at the last minute, as that was not part of the original plans. So I didn't really know that you had a situation with David Flair. Talk me through this. Again, I don't, uh, I can't comment on what was written because I think so much of it is fabrication and, and nonsense. Um, I do agree that there was a period of time, probably in 99 when David flair didn't know if he really wanted to be in the wrestling business. And I don't think that had anything to do with heat, with the company or anything like that. And, and maybe the injury was uh, an issue, but David's heart wasn't in it from the get go. Um, and in fairness to David, he was thrown into a situation he wasn't ready for. He knew it. We all knew it, but it happened anyway. And I think he probably was looking for a way out. Well, there you go. Uh, Sid Vicious and Sting are going to be in here for 10 minutes and 40 seconds. Uh, Meltzer would say Sid is now the 40 year millennium man. They were pushing the entire match. How Sid had a winning streak that rivals Goldberg's old streak. And of course we know what the finish is going to be. Sting is going to hit two stinger splashes. Goes for a third, but Sid catches him, choke slams him. And they play it up as a huge deal that Sid has scored a clean pin on Sting. And of course, they're trying to get him ready for Goldberg. And Meltzer dug it. He says the two did much more than you'd think in this match. Star and a half. I guess it makes sense. If anybody's going to get a good match out of Sid, it should be Sting. Uh, these were two of my favorites growing up. So even though this may not have been their absolute best work, I kind of dug this one. What'd you think? I dug it too. And, you know, you, look, Sid gets a bad rap, you know, when, when people talk about him. First of all, I like Sid to this day. I still see him around at conventions and, and things like that. And I, I, I just always – I got along with him when I worked with him. I never had an issue with him working with him. Um, still friendly with him to this day. Look, he was limited in the ring. You know, he, he wasn't uh, a prolific technician by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, but – Man, he had all the other ingredients, or many of them. He wasn't a great talker, but you talk about a look, and you talk about a real life, you know, 
monster of a man and, and, and somebody that could be that imposing character, it was Sid. And his heart was in the right place most of the time, <laughs> depending on the softball season. Uh, but, yeah, I, I think this was a good match. Steve did a great job setting him up, making him look good. It was a solid match, better than solid. Let's talk about how he came back. I think a lot of people remember he was in ECW for a part of the early part of 1999. And then he pops up here sort of as a surprise, you know, he didn't leave WCW on the best terms the first time after the, uh, or maybe the second time after the stabbing situation, he go winds up in the WWF and then ultimately gets fired from there because they feel like he's not being truthful about his health situation. He pops up in ECW and then randomly. He's back here in WCW who would have sort of campaigned to bring him back. And would there have been a conversation with Arn Anderson or management or anybody about him coming back under these circumstances? Oh, that would have been me. I mean, that would have been my responsibility, I guess, to, to talk to Arn. I don't know if I did or I didn't, to be honest about it. Um, I talked to Sid. Look, when, when Arn, when that incident, now we're going back to a, a different time here, but when that incident went down um Arn you probably should have fired Arn huh you probably should have fired Arn as well should have fired him both of them absolutely yeah. and I didn't um but again once it was over it was over um I didn't talk to Arn that I can recall I may have said something to him I, I don't recall um but I this wasn't a big deal at the time. There was water under the bridge. Let's, uh, let's I know that I know I know that sounds crazy, you know, obviously because it was a very intense situation. But enough time had gone by, and I just wasn't really too concerned with any carryover, if that makes sense. Yeah, makes total sense. Bill Goldberg is going to get a win over Rick Steiner here. Five minutes and thirty-nine seconds. It's never mentioned that uh, Steiner's TV title wasn't at stake, but. At this point, I don't know how many people are keeping up with the TV title. Anyway, the, the story of the match was Steiner taking Goldberg's knee brace off and pounding on him, uh, which, uh, of course doesn't really work. Goldberg's going to make a fiery comeback, press slam, uh, spear, jackhammer fine for what it was. According to Meltzer star in a quarter. It's a pretty high profile opportunity for Rick Steiner. And I know he was well liked amongst the boys and probably Goldberg. And uh, I just know that everybody loves Rick Steiner, but it is a little weird that he's wrestling Goldberg on pay-per-view here in 99. What'd you think of the match and the pairing? I think the pairing was, it was an afterthought. There wasn't great story going into it. It wasn't believable. That's not a role that that kind of a heat role for Rick Steiner was not the kind of thing that was natural to him or his character. It, it it's just it was bad booking. There's no other way to say it. You know, in terms of the chemistry between those two, absolutely great chemistry, but again, Bill was somewhat limited into the type of as for the type of the match that he could have. He was all offense, very little, very little defense, very little selling. Um, he had one gear. And, and he, he, he did very well with that one year, but as a result, it was a, it was a match with not a lot of decent story built into it and in a match in the ring that was, eh, it was what it was. All right. We're finally here. Uh, what everybody remembers most about this show, or at least I do 
Randy Savage and Dennis Rodman. They go 11 minutes and 30 seconds. And Meltzer would say Rodman was the only one that the crowd really saw as a star, although he didn't really get a heel or a face reaction. And interesting to note that every other time Rodman's been here, there's been a hundred photographers from every major publication in America. And this year it's only Ross Foreman. Uh, they're, they're going to try to tell a story here and brawl all over the place. But the thing that I still remember to this day is when they they're brawling sort of backstage, Savage would spear Rodman into a garbage bin and then throw a guy out of a portable toilet. That's right. A porta potty locks Dennis Rodman in said porta potty and then knocks it over. Yeah. What a shitty thing to do. I'm sorry. I had to do that. And then Rodman Talk comes up. out looking none too happy. Woo. Uh, eventually, uh, Rodman puts on the sleeper. Gorgeous. George comes out. Meltzer would say that it, he believes at some point, Carmen Electra was discussed for having some sort of role in this match. And she gives Savage a chain and Rodman, a low blow. And then Savage hits him with a chain and Nick Patrick, if you're keeping score here, is ref number five and uh, counts the pin star and a quarter. So the porta potty spot, (laughs) is this Rodman? I mean, is this Savage just what the fuck's he going to do about it and doing it? Or did they talk about this ahead of time? No. No, they would have talked about it ahead of time. Dennis was really easy to work with in that regard. It was hard to get him real motivated. It was hard to get him, you know, to train and and really prepare for a match. But in terms of what he was willing to do, he was very, very easy. And, you know, Randy, you don't know Randy, but um, if you've ever heard any of the stories about Randy, he never, he never improved a match. Certainly while he worked with me, he was a very detail oriented guy. He wanted to lay every beat out. Wanted to make sure the guy he was working with, you know, understood all of those beats. So no, that they definitely talked about that beforehand. Well, I mean, this is, uh, I don't know as a kid, it's still stuck out. I guess I'm 18 when this happened, but I'll never forget Dennis fucking Rodman being in a porta potty and the macho man, Randy Savage pulled him over, pushed him over in it, which you can imagine how horrific that is, but. Uh, Carmen Electra, do you remember that ever being discussed as being something you guys might try to put together on this show? No, it wasn't. It wasn't discussed. There was a point in time when we were going to do the February uh, NBA replacement uh, gig that we've talked about before. When NBC called me and said, "Hey, you know, do you guys want you want two hours on a uh, on a Monday night or whatever it was, a Thursday night? I can't remember the night. And no, it was a Tuesday night, I believe." And we were going to put together a special, and there was some conversation about um, using Carmen Electra in that particular event, but it was never discussed to have her involved in Sturgis at all. I'm not even sure they were together at that point. Talk to me a little bit about putting this match together on Jay Leno as well, because I think this is the last match you guys put together like this on the show, where Rodman is a guest and Savage comes out as a surprise and spears Rodman. They go over the couch. And, and they were sort of off and running. Talk to me about, you know, how that deal came together to do this on the tonight show and why they were such willing partners. And then, you know, as you sort of lay out how meticulous macho man could be, but maybe Rodman didn't want to train. How did, how did Randy like working with Rodman? 
He loved it. He loved it. You know, Randy Randy knew a good opportunity when he saw one and, and working with Randy, despite the fact that uh, admittedly he didn't get near the amount of coverage and buzz in 99 as he had in the previous two years, as we discussed, he was still a hot enough property to, to, to be a guest on The Tonight Show. Uh, they, he was still bookable, as they say in that business. So Randy saw that as an opportunity, and he liked working with with Rodman. Rod, Rodman and, and Randy got along fine. Um, so th- there was no issues there. As far as setting it up with NBC, again, that goes back to the relationship I had with a guy by the name of Gary Considine, who was the executive producer of The Tonight Show at that time. And we were constantly talking about different things that we could do together throughout the year uh, to give The Tonight Show a little bit of a wrestling buzz and to give WCW an opportunity to reach an audience it otherwise might not reach. So it was just consistent with things that we had been doing and uh, wanted to do more of. Who was easier to work with from your standpoint, Jay Leno or Dennis Rodman? Well, Jay Leno, for sure. Um, Dennis was, you know, he was tough to communicate with sometimes um, because he was just kind of detached from the process until he saw a red light on. Once the red light went on, he was fine. Um, But getting him ready for game day, so to speak, was always a challenge. Jay Leno, on the other hand, uh, worked really hard at it. You know, he... You know, I remember the the first time we worked with him, he came down to – we set up a wrestling ring in Burbank, not far from the NBC studios. And Chris Canyon came down. DDP was there and a couple others. And he really put in the time. You know, he wasn't an athlete. He didn't try to pretend he was. Uh, but he nonetheless put in the work. You know, he showed up in a pair of sweatpants and a T-shirt. And by the time he left, he was soaking in sweat and was – pretty beat up in the process but you know he came back the next day and the day after that the day after that so jay was really committed uh he put himself into it he didn't he didn't just show up and walk through it he he put in the time well you guys are going to put in some time here because the loser must retire and of course the wcw title is on the line when hulk hogan pins kevin nash in 12 minutes and 16 seconds uh mark madden on the uh web broadcast of this match. So he's not calling the pay-per-view. He's doing the internet audio version. Instead of calling it a loser must retire match, he calls it a loser gets time off match. <laughs> and, uh, the <laughs> rating comes in as a dud. Uh, of course, Hogan comes out with red and yellow and Tony Schiavone keeps emphasizing the name Hulk Hogan, as opposed to Hollywood Hulk Hogan. And, uh, Meltzer would say Hogan's left knee seemed to be real bad at this point as he didn't want to put any weight on it. Nash dominates, but doesn't do much of anything. Hogan bladed, but for whatever reason, it didn't draw much blood. And finally Nash hit the jackknife, but Hogan kicked out, did the old Superman come back and, uh, the high boot and a leg drop and that's over. Allegedly going into this, Kevin Nash is, uh, sort of pushing back on this creative and didn't want to put the Hulkster over and felt like it was time to do something differently. And that's all rumor and innuendo about him sort of as a behind the scenes player for WCW, helping write some TV. What do you remember? Was there some contentiousness here between Hogan and and Nash here? I don't think not, not between Hogan and Nash individually as people, uh, I think booking-wise, there was a lot of friction. There was a lot of um, uh, 
a lot of different points of view, a lot of different opinions. Look, we didn't have we didn't have a good direction at that time. I'm going to be the first one to admit it. By by this time in 1999, the wheels were definitely falling off on a lot of different levels, and obviously just by going through this show, um, certainly this show represented that. It, it manifested itself very nicely on this show. Um, we were having problems and there was a lot of just a lot of stress in a lot of different ways, but certainly creatively in this particular match. Yeah, there was some back and forth, how it should be done, how, you know, what it was going to look like. Keep in mind, Kevin Nash had knee issues. He wasn't the healthiest person uh, in the world when it came to his wheels. Hulk Hogan was hurting at that time. So they were both somewhat limited. And as talents, you know, neither one of them were the types of, you know, performer that could carry the other you know to a four-star match so to speak so there were a lot of there was a lot of stress involved in this match but i think everybody went into it realizing that they had to do the best they could with with what we had to work with at that time and we didn't have a lot of great story built up well we've got a great story planned for you guys here on 83 weeks because our next two episodes are going to be special it's arn anderson and clash of the champions 35 of course, Arn Anderson, one of the all-time greats and the newest member uh, of our little podcast family. We're excited about that. But Clash of the Champions 35, this is the last Clash of the Champions. And you and I talked a little bit about this last week and about how, you know, whereas once upon a time it became priority or it was very priority. Uh, with Nitro, maybe that changed. Maybe a little less so. And believe it or not, the last Clash of the Champions, at least for WCW, before the WWF dusted it off, Went down August 21st, 1997, and your main event was Scott Hall and Randy Savage taking on Diamond Dallas Page and Lex Luger. I'm looking forward to that one next week. What do you remember about that Clash of the Champions in Nashville? What do you think we might talk about next week? I remember absolutely nothing, so I'm going to have to go back to the WWE Network, pull it up, and revisit it. Why don't we do this? Let's watch it together next week. Let's make this one a watch-along. Clash of the Champions 35. What do you think? It's a date. Looking forward to it. Stay tuned next week and every week for more 83 weeks with Eric Bischoff. John brings his skewed sense of humor. Jeff brings tips to cut strokes off your next round. Together, it's those weekend golf guys. They'll pay a lot of money to PXG and Titleist and Callaway and on and on and on. How many yards do you think you're going to pick up with that extra? I think I can get an extra 5 to 10. What if I give you 15 to 20? <laughs> you pay me more. Jeff Smith right? teaches on the sliding scale. <laughs> those weekend golf guys, the podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen.